This conversation is brought to you in part by Produce Careers with promotional consideration from Calavo Growers and Volcano Produce. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome. I appreciate you incredibly much today. I just want you to know that because I want to inspire you, and that's my goal today. And by telling you how much I appreciate you, it's a nice way of doing it. I know what your path is today, but I hope it's a good one. And if not, hopefully this little time we hang out together makes a little bright spot. Isn't that nice? I'm like a little beret of sunshine. I absolutely love it. Excited for my guest today. I love this conversation. I love what these guys are up to. I love some of the people that are working with them. You know, we're going to talk about my cow in a minute. We're going to get there. Chris is going to get that. He's going to hear that story. Nonetheless, everybody, please give it up, pull over, start clapping, get off the treadmill, get ready to rock and roll. Please welcome the co-CEO of Land Market, Chris Kirsten. Welcome, sir. I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much, Todd. I'm excited to be here. Well, you say that, say, say that now. Let's see what happens when we're done. Okay. That's all I care about, right? Everybody's right. excited at the beginning and it's like, well, at the end, it kind of sucked. No. Teasing. I, I, I doubt it. <laughs> I haven't had that yet. We're like 150 of these in. I'm, I think we're doing okay with getting people pretty excited about what we're talking about. Thrilled to have you here. You know, what you guys are doing in the regenerative ag space and what you're trying to accomplish and the conversation for change that you're making is incredibly powerful. And I'm looking forward to talking about it today. When, when the, the great and powerful Abby Oppenheim from, from Apex called me and said, hey, you got to meet Chris. You got to get this guy and you got to get chatting with him. It's just like it was a no brainer. It's like, OK, well, first of all, you know, I'm not going to tell Abby, no, I'm, I'm afraid to do that. But nonetheless, <laughs> it was great to be able to, to, to like connect and make it happen, because, again, I, I value and trying to drive value into to people understanding our food better. Right. And what it means. And you guys are doing that and you're leading a charge in such a unique way. So I'm really excited to have you here. And get into this and get into the weeds and talk about your niches and what you're about, and why people need to start looking for this label and what it means. So before I get off on that, and I'll shut the hell up for a second and let you get rocking. Tell me a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, just your journey in bio and give everybody a little 411 about who you are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and thank you for not like reading my CV. I find that like the cringiest thing in the world when you're about to go on stage and somebody somebody reads like where you went to school. Dude, doesn't it? It's almost like you feel like it's an obituary when somebody yeah, else reads. It's, it's exactly I swear to God, that's like. why I don't do it. Yeah, I'll sit behind stage. I'm, I'm like getting pumped and it is like the biggest like deflationary move somebody can make before you go out. And talk well, and that if you want to walk <laughs> out and go, ta-da! I know, right? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, no, I love it. You. I love it. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll try not to go too long format. I can be kind of a New Yorker style communicator. So I'll try to keep it under nine oh, good. pages. Good. Uh, keep cussing. Uh, cuss. Make sure you cuss a lot. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so um, did not grow up in agriculture. And so I think that's, a, that's an important part of the start of my journey. Um, got into it in high school. And, and really just fell in love with these big beastly animals being outside. There was something really primal about it. Just like humans have been following these animals for a long time and they've been following humans. And there was just this like, like synergy to it. But in the beginning, it was really conventional for me. And, and I realized pretty quickly the power of, of oligarchy of the food system when there's only a handful of buyers out there and those buyers are three to five companies, you are so beholden to that system that you can't even think outside of the box. It's heresy. And so in the early days, I could tell you what corn futures were trading for, what was happening in Brazil on a weekly basis. Like I was very much 
indoctrinated into the commodity system and that conventional system. Um, and then I went to, I was a big public library guy, loved to read. Uh, I came across the book, You Can Farm by Joel Salatin. Yeah. Uh, if people don't know Joel Salatin, he's this uh, really innovative, outspoken farmer in Virginia. And here, in, if, if you've read Food Inc., uh, I've seen the movie Food Inc. or read, read Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan, he's the farmer feature in both of those, both award-winning pieces of media. Um, I pick up this book and it was literally like the light shone upon it, angels sing. It was everything that I thought was possible, but no one in my sphere of influence was doing. Um, and so he's talking about direct marketing, aligning with consumers on shared values, using nature as a model, um, stewarding the land, not taking as much as you can from it just for the sake of that. Um, you know, finding consumers that care about their health, that care about the environment, that, that um, you know, care about their communities. Um, and it was just, I mean, it was literally like a, like a biblical event for me. I mean, it was just like, boom. And oddly enough, at the time, I was working for the University of California Extension Agency. And so this is, this is a body set up by the government to help farmers. And I had a really progressive guy I was working for. And he booked Joel Salatin to come and speak. I didn't even know it was happening. But like months later, I meet this guy. And Joel became a friend of mine. Uh, I met him early on. He, was, he wasn't quite famous. He hadn't done any of the media pieces yet. Right. Um, he was just a guy out there trying to help farmers. And he says, you got to really understand this guy, Alan Savory. And I had, had a little exposure to Alan Savory um, prior to that. Uh, but he was like, this is, this is really the next step for you and your journey and what you're doing. Um, and so I started finding professors in school that taught this process of what's called holistic management. This guy, Alan Savory, had, had created. And it's really this process of, of how you look at nature uh, as a model, as something to mimic, but also take a proactive triple bottom line approach. So, so we're going to budget for our resources. We're going to budget for our energy. We're going to budget for the social outcomes that we want. And then we're going to plan for that the same way we would with a financial budget. And you're going to go every day and optimize on that. It's not going to be perfect, but there is no recipe. There's no 10 steps to flatter abs that you would see like on the cover of a magazine process for these complex systems, which is what agriculture is. And so, um, so after that, I started working for a farm uh, in Northern California. I had, I had cattle of my own at that point. I had heard of about 30. Um, my parents came from big business. They worked at a Fortune 500 company. Uh, both of them worked at the same company. And, and I had the opportunity to go and be in like a fast track program with through that company where like managers, kids get their college paid for, you get jobs over the summer, you're guaranteed a, a mid-level job when you get out. And I'm like, no, mom and dad, I'm going to go farm. And I just went like, what are you talking Your heads about? explode. We <laughs> so, failed. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so, so I go start working for this farm in Northern California, which is where I still live today. And um, we, I just got tied in with this fifth generation family farm. They had incredible resources, had kind of gone through that same conventional machine and they were coming out generationally on the other side being like, okay, we got to do something different. And one of the things that's probably worth explaining about that is, is when you work for generational farmers, it's a little bit like generational wealth. It's just their wealth, their cash for the land is their wealth. And right. so you're raised from birth being like, don't fuck it up on your watch. And so they're inherently become less innovative each generation that goes on because the legacy is what you put as the North Star. 
And so to find people that were like, okay, we're fifth generation and we're going to go back to ground zero and see how we do this was a huge rarity. And they're yeah. like, you're not one of our kids, but we're going to bring you in as a partner and we're going to learn our way into this together. And so we did that and it was a really cool operation, like had waterfalls all over the farm. It was backed up against this old lava flow, um, had uh, 600 acres of 100 year old olive orchards, stone fruit, citrus. We literally picked fresh fruit every day of the year. We had uh, in, the, in the shoulder seasons, we were picking like avocados, um, pomegranates, figs on top of uh, like peaches, cherries, nectarines that would roll in later in the winter. Then we'd get into mandarins, oranges, grapefruits, lemons. Like it, it was incredible. And they had always kind of run livestock up on the hilly part. And what we collectively decided to do was what if we started running the livestock in the orchard? So the sheep and the cows become the mowers, the right. goats handle invasive weeds, chickens debug and fertilize. So we're looking at, at na nature as a model. We're taking things from permaculture as a mindset of people are familiar with that. And then kind of filtering that through this holistic context process set up by Alan Savory. Um, and so that was kind of our, our process there. That farm got moderately famous. Uh, we were really early to direct to consumer. Um, we sold online before everybody else did. We did you know eight farmers markets a week. We had buying clubs all over the West. Um, and that got me even closer and closer to Joel Salton. Right. So we started booking him to come out and do speaking gigs in our community. Everybody else at the time is taking his honorarium, which wasn't huge. It was under 10 grand uh, at the time. And, and they were trying to do the high volume, I mean, the, the, the high margin approach and get, you know, X number of people to pay a hundred bucks for a ticket to cover his cost. And we went the opposite route and said, I think the community wants to hear this message. We're going to charge 12 bucks a ticket and, and try to fill a, a whole, a whole venue the right. first time we had them out, we maxed out. We we sold out weeks before the event. Seven hundred people there. Uh, wow. The next one, it was twelve hundred, um, and we <laughs> we got greedy. We went from twelve dollars a ticket to fourteen dollars a ticket. And look at you! Look you at you at go that. all capitalist on everybody, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> you have to apologize for that these days. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, so so uh, so he and I got close and became friends, and um, at the same time. The Savory Institute got founded and it's, it's taking off. Um, and really with the effort of, of Alan Savory saying, I want to take this message globally. We've been training trainers all over the world for a really long time. We've been working on all six continents, but there hasn't been connective tissue between all of that. And there hasn't been kind of this ongoing perennial presence. And so um, the Savory Institute, Alan Savory, has, has a larger network of farmers globally than, than really anyone, I think. I've yet to find anybody that really rivals that. But a trainer would go to a region, they would work there for a bit, and they'd move on. Right. People would reach the tip of what they learned from that. We needed to go to the next thing. And so um, I got the opportunity to go and work for the Savory Institute really early on. And I said, you know, it's a challenge to, to, to kind of put down the farming for a minute, but I really wanted to work on these opportunities at a global scale. Um, and so I did that. And that was 10 years ago. I can't believe it's been 10 years. But I, I was the first outside hire after the original round of founders. Um, and I've, I've worked a number of positions in the organization, seen all the, the growth, helped created this network of what we call hubs. And so we have these, these field offices around the world um, that are locally led and managed. They take the, the process, the principles-based design of what Alan Savory set up for holistic management, and then they contextualize how to teach that in their region into their own socioeconomic political context. 
Um, and so I get to travel a bunch. Uh, I get to go all over the world, work with farmers. Um, I think in my travels, the things that have that maybe surprised me the most is how much the same the world is versus how different, even though everyone says, you know, we're all pissed at each other and we're all different. I find more the same than different. And from a farmer perspective, you find it's, we're mad at the government, we're mad at taxes, we're mad at the people that buy our product and don't pay us enough. We're mad at the weather. It's all the same everywhere. Yeah, yeah you're right. And, and so, um, so have been just incredibly blessed to get to go and see the world, uh, build a broader community of people. Sometimes I talk about um, this idea of a long time in my own community, I felt like an island. Uh, that I was the weird one, that I was the one that was willing to do things different and kind of buck the system. And it's like joining a family of like an archipelago. It's like finding all those islands around the world and saying, okay, we're all part of the same tribe. And now the technology of this planet allows us to align and commune in a way that we weren't able to before. Um, so that was longer format than you wanted for a bio, but no. that's a little about me. Um, no, not I, at all. I think it's great. I'll, I'll add a little bit on the last chapter there Four years ago, uh, we lived in Paradise, California. The whole town burned down. <clears throat> we lost wow. everything, um, as did all of our, our friends and neighbors. Um, and to, to work your life on, on agriculture as not only a way to create nutrient-dense food, but also be a solution to a changing climate. And then to have a fire come in November, weeks yeah. before Thanksgiving, when is that fire season? And do the level of devastation and destruction that it did in a matter of hours, unprecedented. Um, the irony of that, to be on that journey and then, and then to face it firsthand, really galvanized my spirit in this space that I don't want that same thing to happen to other people. It's already happening more than it should. Sure. Um, and, and the world is really awakening to the notion that how we steward our land can mitigate so much of this. Um, that really became a point in time where it's like, this is this is the journey for my life. This is going to be what I do to the end of my days, um, and and it's it's about how can we give our kids something better than what we're currently facing. Thanks for joining the Todd Versation, and now a word from our sponsor. At Produce Careers, we are in the people business. Thanks for listening to Todd Versations. As your trusted executive search firm for the fresh produce, food processing, and agribusiness industries, we focus on outcomes. With over 80 years of combined industry expertise with our global networks, we have the tools and the skills to identify top talent for your organization's strategic hiring needs. Our relationship-driven approach and proven recruitment process deliver the right candidates at the right time. At Produce Careers, we know each hire is an investment. Whether you're looking for the perfect candidate or searching for your next challenge, call or email us today and let us partner with you. Hundred percent behind nope. that, brother. I'll You're stop preaching. there. That's no, that's a bit dude, of my story. <laughs> I love it. No, dude, you set me up for a whole bunch to ask you. There's no two ways about it. But I absolutely, hundred percent agree with you. You know, it's how we in this country, in my opinion, don't value our food. Right? We've come to expect it. It's become too easy for us. And I get it. Right? And I don't get me into the hunger and starving. I that I'm on the front line of that battle. That's not what this point is about. The fact of the matter is, we don't value our food. We want it cheaper. Food shouldn't be cheap. Food should be good. That should be the number one priority. And we need to learn as a society what it means to make food cheap and to make food processed and to make you glow at night when you eat something. You know, it, it's hard for me to believe that there's, there's, there's 
and people kind of surprised. It's hard for me to believe that there's products that they don't want you to put on your face, but yet you can farm with it as a chemical, right? You can't put it. So it's like, totally. guys, where does the value to the food come? How do we deal with it? You know, look, I'm a big, big proponent. I talk all the time about school nutrition and how things start at that level, how we're going to change the world through educating children on how to eat better and what that means, et cetera. So you got to, you got me on your team without even having to say another word, right? And I was on your team beforehand. Anyway, so I love what Landon Park is about, but it's incredibly important these conversations happen. And I think your perspective as we go through some of the things I want to talk about today, I think it's going to be incredibly valuable for people to hear because, again, the call to action that I have is get to know your food. Start to value it. You've got to ask yourself, how can they make money at 99 cents through a drive-thru? What is the food actually worth? That's a problem, kids. That's a problem we don't ask ourselves. It's too freaking easy. So I'm excited for this. Before we get rolling, though, because I want to get into the Savory Institute and what you're going there, I want to get a little bit in the weeds and that, but I think it's important that we get everybody a little bit of a, like, first question I would throw it is, give everybody a little bit of what is land to market, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, and, and I'll, just, I'll just go back to your point, Rohan, before diving go, into land to market. I think even on that fast food equation, you asked the question, you know, what really has to happen to keep this at 99 cents and make a profit? And also, what speed does the system have to work at behind the scenes so mm -hmm. that those 99 cents can churn out one after another and you don't have to wait for anything? So I, I love the way that you position it up as, as value because something can be valuable and we should value it. And then there's mm -hmm. another discussion of whether or not somebody can pay for it. And those are separate things. And we can, we can remove the elitism and, and, and entitlement debate out of it when we say, Let's just make sure that we put value on this and then decide how we distribute it to people, not say everyone should get che cheaper food and the rest of us are somehow all going to pay for the unintended consequences of that, which are massive. So I, I think 100%. you're spot on. Yeah, yeah 100%. And look, I, I'll take another step further in the, in the conversation. I personally believe, and this is something that I'm talking about and just had a conversation at length this morning about, I believe that we are in a position in this country with how we value our food, that the small to medium-sized growers in this country are under a major threat of being out of business because of the way oh, sure. we don't value, because cheaper is the narrative, right? You don't see any, but you, you're not going to see an ad in the Sunday circular that says, we have the highest prices and great service. Ain't going to happen, kids, right? Yeah. And, and, and these farmers and these ranchers and these people are out there that are making a difference every day are going to start to blow away in the wind. And that's going to cause problems we can't even conceive of, like food insecurity. And I challenge people this all the time. Go in your kitchen right now, open up every cupboard, take a look at all the food that you have in your house and ask yourself, what would happen if I couldn't get any more because of something in this world that happens, right? I mean, who knows what? The point of the matter is, is that we have got to start stepping back and recognizing that if we don't put energy into our food system, our climate's going to be affected. Our health is drastically affected. All of it has a domino effect. So, yeah. you know, where we're heading together on this conversation, I mean, you know, I, I hope we fire people up and go, God, you're right. We should stop, drop and roll and pause for a second. And, and most of our most of our cities have about on average two week storage in the grocery store of food for people. So what happens yeah, when that runs out? You go in. You go into uh, island economies like uh, New Zealand, Hawaii. That's all exacerbated because now your kind of secondary, tertiary places that you would pull from are now over an ocean. Um, so I think it's good that people are starting to think like this, to have that dialogue. Um, your notion of farms blowing away has been accelerating for the last hundred years. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's been a, a, an element of it more systemic than that for really all of human civilization. And so we're at such an interesting place in time where not only is, is nourishment part of the dialogue, 
but something we call ecosystem services is part of the dialogue as well, that how we steward land impacts how clean our water is, how clean our air is, how much biodiversity we have. Um, and this, and this is really what created land to market. And so, um, you know, we've been believers of this narrative that, that as the world awakens this idea that the soil could be the solution to, uh, climate change is part of the solution to world hunger is part of the solution to water insecurity is part of the solution to struggling rural economies, which is happening everywhere. And we're getting the biggest exodus of all history into urban environments, which are mm -hmm. fragile by definition are fragile environments. Yeah. Uh, they are man-made and, and have less resilience as that's all happening. The world's kind of waking up maybe for the first time that that really puts the farmer, the agrarian, I'm going to use the farmer in the global sense. So all types of farmers, right. the agrarian, as um, really the ambassador to that solution. There isn't enough conservation land out there to have an impact. It's working landscapes that we can have these, this impact. And, and yet really for all of human history, we've relegated that, that, that class of society to the peasant class. Uh, mm -hmm. nobody, nobody strives to be a farmer. You inherit that or you do it as a life calling, you know, predominantly, you know, a hippie community, you know, kind of a thing. Um, and so, to really value that solution is what we wanted to, to create. What if society really recognizes? We had a few people, like I mentioned, Joel Salatin, uh, there's, you know, Gabe Brown. Uh, there's a number of players that have kind of moved up to this like rock star status. Mm -hmm. What if that happened for farming as a community and not just for these singular outliers? So what if we went from, from Capitol Records to Spotify, where instead of just the top 40, now there's a whole plethora of indies out there that we can all find and get excited about and really lift up this whole caliber of society, this whole like group of society. And so that's, that's what land to market set out to do. Um, it, the vehicle of how that happened was we had brands coming to the Sabre Institute to say, hey, you're, you've got these tendrils in the farming communities all over the world. What if we use that as a sourcing solution? We're like, yeah, you know, we're out there, our business to business value prop is to make them more resilient, to, to not tell them how to farm, but to give them the tools to create a recipe for their own success and just to continue to optimize their management. There isn't right. really like a checklist to be like, yep, these are the good ones, these are the bad ones. And we hate that narrative anyway, of this like good versus bad white hat, black hat. And so um, we, we just didn't stop getting requests. Like the marketplace was really, really hungry for this. And so we sat and thought about it for a while. We said, what if we started to, to measure environmental health at the farm level? There's programs that talk about chemical usage, i.e. organic. There's programs that talk about welfare. There's programs that talk about uh, whether people are paid fairly. Right. There's all these programs out there, but none of them inherently speak to land health and certainly nobody out there quantifying it and measuring it. So what if we did that? What if we built a way to go and measure ecosystem health measure it broadly, not just look at one variable like soil health or one variable like carbon, but looked at all of it together, aggregated that, normalized it for eco-regions around the world so that the data in Nevada can talk to data in Vermont, um, even though they get drastically different rainfall and have different weather patterns. Um, what if we did that? I think some of the best ideas in life come out of naivety because we thought, hey, we're already further along on this than everybody else. And then actually doing it was a massive undertaking, even For though sure. we were already so far ahead of the pack. It was five, six years to take an existing protocol we had to help farmers optimize their management and build it out for the marketplace 
Um, and so we launched a scientific protocol called Ecological Outcome Verification. Um, EOV is what we call it for short. Um, and, that, and that measures all of these different aspects that we're looking at soil health, sequestered carbon, water, biodiversity, and they're all windows into the same room. So um, I'll save that for a minute and we'll go a little further on that. But, but we went out into this measurement system. That's what we, that's what we created. Um, so then we could go back to the brands and say, okay, we're kind of going into your realm, kicking and screaming. That's not really been our background or our bailiwick, but we think we could do something really, really innovative together. Uh, and so we started with some brands that we, we jokingly call uh, angel philanthropists because they had to invest in us creating this, not knowing what we were going to come with on the other side. And we're a nonprofit and we're not selling equity. Um, and so we were able to build out that pro protocol to scale it up um, and get to a place that we could say these properties as the way they're stewarding their land, you know, kind of distilling it down for management, they're getting that positive results. Some of them right. are doing it in spite of droughts, in spite of no rainfall coming for years, you know, in spite of, you know, increased winds and increased temperatures, they're getting these net positive results because they're paying attention to how they manage and they're optimizing that and they're going on the journey the same way we have to for fitness or anything else in our life. It's a continuous journey of improvement. It's not a binary good versus bad. Um, and so we created a way to kind of track progress on that right. journey and then communicate that with the marketplace. And, and, you know, I started with the story of like, I didn't want to go work my parents' big company that they worked for. And so this was a big shock to my family. And it's like, oh, now you're going to go work for the man and, and help support them. And at the end of the day, when we looked at the resources on the table, humanity is right. not going to make it without, I'm going to straight up steal from B Corp right now, without business acting for a force for good. That's B Corp's tagline. And we work with B Corp. We love them. They're great. But if business isn't acting as a force for good, do we really think that through these couple of disparate, private, and philanthropic things that we're going to make it? No, we have to figure out how to incentivize. And I'm a believer in, 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 in a new era of capitalism that looks more triple bottom line, that if we incentivize all the things we want as society, that business can help us get there. Uh, and that only happens if we value those things on the other end as consumers and understand the broader suite of services that come from that for us and for our children. Um, yeah. So again, long format, but that's, no. that was the start of land to market. We, we now work with over a hundred brands globally, some of the world's biggest companies. Um, it is both in food and apparel. We were shocked how much demand there was for this in apparel. So one of our first companies was caring group that owns like Gucci, Balenciaga, St. Laurent. Uh, we do big projects with, with UGG and Decker um, with, uh, Madewell, um, uh, New Balance, um, Kate Spade, Tapestry Coach, um, a number of our big clients are in the apparel space. And then we have the food ones too. Obviously it makes sense in food. It's something we're putting in our bodies. Consumers get that. Um, but then we're also starting at a place where companies want to share with their customers what you put on your body is important as well. Um, so we're tackling the apparel space at the same time. I absolutely love it. I mean, God, what a journey! But it's you know, it's a, you're going to have a never-ending job. Job security is going to be here for a while. But, you yeah, know, right. But, you know, as we, as we get this, let and I think it's a fair question to throw out just to give people a little bit. I'm going to give you a two-part question really quick. First, you know, give everybody just a quick synopsis of what is regenerative agriculture, right? Because there's really not a defined operating standards and there's practices. It's kind of all over the board. I mean, it's kind of like the word sustainable today. Um, what does it mean? We're trying to define it. We're trying to make it into something which you guys are doing, you know, leading that charge. There's no two ways about it. So if you wouldn't mind, give everybody a quick little synopsis on 
kind of what that means. And then I want to get into the sourcing solutions and all this other stuff because it's just, it's fascinating. Yeah, I think I think starting with the definition is such an important place as for grounding because, you know, the way the way I explain it is, is sometimes right now uh, people will brand any warm and fuzzy feeling in their heart as regenerative, and so it's like ah, I, I intended I intend to do a good job. That's regenerative, and so now all of a sudden this buzzword is like we have regenerative everything, and everybody is regenerative. Um, I'm seeing a lot of of, and this is the most concerning to me about the term, and it's why we didn't call ourselves. Regenerative Inc. We we said land to market, and for a reason we wanted to kind of differentiate ourselves from the term if it gets adulterated. Um, we're seeing a lot right now where people are saying, "Well, there's somebody worse than me, so I'm regenerative. I'm comparing to the worst of the worst, and so that makes me regenerative." You mentioned practices. There's also people that want to like take this idea of a regenerative practice that if we do this one thing everywhere, it'll work. And so how that comes from is, is, you know, universities will do studies. They typically try to, to uh, manage for a single variable. So they try to take all the noise out, which sure. isn't what works in the real world. There's the real world is full of noise. You try to get that single variable and, and isolate for that. And then you do a study in Vermont and say, hey, this will be metabolized by the eco region of Nevada the same way. We all know at a core level, that isn't really the way it works. No. But then we want to give this, this, you know, approved practice, a certain number of carbon gold stars which doesn't really mean anything. It's all like a made up accounting system. And so that was a lot of what we wrestled with when we created this scientific protocol, the ecological outcome verification, um, is, is how do we do that? And so we focus on in this journey-based approach comparing to ourselves. And so if, if you're a farm, you compare to yourself year over year, there's some calibration that happens in that eco-region that looks at a broader set of data. But, but when you're actually measuring yourself, it's your own journey over time. And, and we believe regenerative should be, according to Webster, synonymous with net positive. And so if we're synonymous with net positive, you really need to track those results. It's the idea that, that sustainability isn't enough. If we stop right now and say, we're not ever going to make the environment any worse than it is today, we're still fucked. We have yeah. way more carbon in the atmosphere than, than we can sustain. We're already going up by more than two degrees. We have to figure out a way to draw it down. The only way to draw it down is via biological systems currently. There is no technology that we can see scaling in the time allotted or being cost-effective to vacuum this shit out of the sky and, and bury it in the ground like nuclear waste. Nature has a way of doing that and it's called photosynthesis. Photosynthesis, the process we all forgot about from high school biology, we all had to learn that C6, H12, whatever it was, process of taking carbon dioxide out of the air, mixing it with hydrogen from water in the soil and making a carbo, hydrate. Your, your, your paleo and carnivore listeners are cringing right now, but you're making a carbohydrate. Um, and that carbohydrate is a source of fertility in the soil. So those, right. those are the smallest particles in the soil. They're what make up your organic matter. Um, and those small particles have the most amount of surface area around them, which means more water sticks to them for longer. And when you have more water in the ecosystem, you get this more biological output, more biodiversity. Um, so really, if you had to narrow it down to one thing, it's net positive results. How do we do that? We maximize photosynthesis. What do we do to make that happen? We have to measure it. So we have to be optimizing our management as we are, we're not here measuring to be the police of anything. We are huge believers in the old adage of what gets measured get man gets managed. And so that measurement, you can't, you can't improve your fitness without having a scale, without having a heart rate monitor, without checking right. your blood pressure. It's the same thing. We're trying to provide that technology to be able to measure 
the outcomes and people optimize their own management. Yeah, and I and I love what you said, and I'm going to come along with this because it just it sets up what I want to talk about next beautifully. What you're doing is not greenwashing. What you're doing is not green hushing. What you're doing is not just saying something to check a box on somebody's form to get a vendor number, right? Whatever it might be, because you are outcomes based. You are looking yeah. in how to verify solutions. I love the fact that it's individual verifications, and you're looking over that overarching. Here's what the zip code looks like. We understand what you're doing, right? I think that's incredibly powerful because you're not judging people per se, right? You're giving people right, an opportunity sure. to grow within their own system. And some of it could be financial too. Some of it could be hardship based, right? It's like all of a sudden I lost my entire crop. Yeah, what am I going to do? I get all that. And I think it's incredibly powerful yeah. the position you've taken because it's bringing people alongside you, which is what we need to do if we want to talk about driving value back into our food system, right? We got to bring the consumers alongside because that's how you're going to change who's selling our food and who's manufacturing our food. So I, I want to get in a little bit more and, and I'm going to give you a long ass question, let you just run with it here. A, you know, talk a little bit about the outcome-based verification, you know, solution, what that means, but, you know, how do you do it? And then share about how Savory and, and EOV kind of come together. I know it's a kind of a fucked up question, but you know where I want to try to head with it, basically where we're at. And so if you wouldn't mind twisting that, I don't know, answer it any way you want. You could say dog and I'd be passive, but it'd be fine. But, you know, come up with, you know, kind of twist that if you wouldn't mind. I think it'd be cool to hear. Yeah. So um, building out that EOV protocol took a long time, getting the eco regions defined to be able to, like you said, the zip code of like measuring there within, uh, and then getting a cadre of monitors around the globe that are are trained and equipped to go out and, and look at these things uh, and do that well and do it consistently. Um, mm -hmm. We're always ongoingly improving on that, but that, that took a long time to get there. Yeah. Uh, to be able to say, we're going to measure this metric the same way everywhere on the planet. No one had really done before. And so we've, we've taken this, this kind of, again, accidentally, this, this big bite and moving the narrative forward and how we measure landscapes. Um, the way universities would measure things, it's like cost is no issue. You know, we're going to get this million dollar laser machine. We're going to take it in on the back of a backhoe. It's like, we got to do this in Central Australia and Mongolia, like places, you know, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa, places that don't have resources. How do we scale something to do it the same way every time? And so, um, so EOV was built out of the protocol. We had to create the training modules to then train people to go and do it consistently all around the globe. Um, and now we have that happening. We have all six continents. We have armies wow. of monitors and that's growing exponentially all over the world. And that's happening through that hub network that we started at the beginning right. as really a training and a perennial resource for the farmers. Now that also becomes this, this capacity building machine that can, can crank out this, um, you know, this ability uh, from a monitoring standpoint. So monitors go out year over year and they measure the land. Uh, you do a minimum of 10 sites on each property, larger properties, that'll be more. There's a, a global team, which I'll talk more about in a minute, that makes sure that you're stratifying that property correctly for its, its representation. We tend to work in animal agriculture the most. And so think broad acre, large properties. It sure. is not uncommon for us to be working in properties that are over 100,000 acres and, and seven figures, a million acre plus properties are normal as well. Um, and so you need to figure out where we're measuring, why we're measuring. So a measurement plan is made, the measurements get taken, that gets sent to a local quality assurance person in that region that's stationed at the hub that can help contextualize that data first for, oh, well, this part of that eco region has this going on or this geological feature or this change in soil or this type of weather pattern. And then that goes to a global quality assurance team that then um, 
looks for noise in that data, does further weather normalization with like some Landsat data and things like that. Um, and then we're able to come out and say, this is our confidence interval and how much this score has changed. And our primary purpose for that is always the farmer first in helping them understand what's happening on their land so that they can get uh, more optimization in their management. Secondarily, how do we then quantify that for brands that are saying, we want to be progressive, have an impact source better uh, yeah. to utilize that data accordingly. Um, so that's, that's the approach. In terms of how it all fits together, uh, Savory Institute is a 501c3 started in Boulder, Colorado. Um, EOV and Land to Market were their IP that they created. They are also the people that uh, oversee the growth of this global network of hubs and trainers and monitor and all of that. Uh, as that entity grew, we said, we need to change some stuff up here in an entity structure. And so they spun out Land to Market as its own public benefit corporation. EOV still lives inside of Savory Institute. Savory, right. We intentionally wanted to create a firewall between the market and the science so that that no big check can ever be written big enough. You know, we, we're thinking generationally, long past we're the ones at the helm, no big check can ever be written to change what happens here at the science level. And so we built that, that firewall between the two. And then we realized North Americans are pretty isolationist versus Europeans are very focused on the global state of the world because they're all matched together. Can you say Ukraine? Um, and so, you know, all the different refugee crises we've had in the last 10 years all shows up on their doorstep. And so the philanthropy community in Europe is much more global thinking. So we also just launched a foundation. Part of that foundation, which is based in Europe, uh, has a team with it called Impact Landed. Impact mm -hmm. Landed is like our special forces for regenerative. And so they can take funded projects and help get all the pieces, all the right players there and say, let's get this project off the ground in the region, kind of like, you know, Frankenstein, like pump it to life. And now it can become its own thing that moves off into the future. Um, so that's, that's kind of our outlay of, of brands and what we now call, which is this new emerging thing we call Savory Group uh, that's really taken off in the last year. So a, a ton of my life these days is actually talking to like CPAs and lawyers and all the business structure pieces of it. Uh, but that's really important because to work in society and to have the impact you want, you have to be able to play in those systems uh, and optimize your own structures to get done what you want to get done. Um, yeah. So that's been a huge part of the growth of the last couple of years. Well, I, you know, I love it, man, because, you know, it's exactly what I said earlier. There's not a greenwashing. It's actually legitimate. You can actually go in and see how you are voting with your dollars. You can actually go in and say that this is set up in a way to be successful that I can feel good about. When you see the land and market logo on packages, you know, and, and as I told you, I got my cow, you know, Blake and Stephanie, they, I, I asked for a cow. They said, yes, I've never seen the cow. I'm sure it's just out there. Somewhere. <laughs> if, I, if I showed up, they would just point to it. Right. It'd be like, cool. <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's an incredibly powerful tool. And again, I'm going to keep harping on this because I think it's so freaking incredibly powerful that we start to value our food. And it's exactly what you all are doing. You are putting a way to measure success through agriculture, through the soil, through all of the different things you're looking at and say why it's working and prove why. So again, it's not this, hey, look, you know, you drink a Diet Coke and eat French fries. There's zero calories. They cancel each other out. That's something that people think, right? And along some of those lines. So you're, exactly. you're holding to a higher standard. So talk to me a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, you know, when I think about all this, what about data? Like, you know, the changes to just, you know, basically that you've made so far through the program. Do you have something that's like, you know, Anything you want to like throw out there on the front page of this newspaper? 
Yeah, I mean, we've done the measurement protocol on over three and a half million acres globally. It's creeping up close to four million. We'll probably announce that in not too long. Um, well, you just kind of did, by the way. You just kind of. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not quite sure who you thought you were bullshitting right there, but I did catch that. Yeah, we, um, we we've learned a ton. It's it's incredible to see how much progress can be made. We continue to focus on on livestock arenas because. They're, they're much more intact ecosystems. And one of the things that I think kind of gets missed in the narrative in this world of everything plant-based is good. If you just say plant-based, it's like it gets a free pass. Like, I don't know if anyone's looked around and cropping anytime recently, but like it's, it's just as conventional as everything else in our modern world. Sure. Um, if we're trying to maximize photosynthesis, crops aren't great for that. There's tons of bare ground in crops. And so what we work with is these intact ecosystems of grasslands getting animals stewarded correctly on top of that um, and and focusing on those that are doing it right. Is there a bad animal agriculture out there? Yes. Absolutely. But we want to show that there's, you know, kind of shift the zeitgeist that everything animal agriculture is bad, everything plant-based is good. There's a lot of it depends on both of those. And we can maximize photosynthesis better on the on the livestock side, easier and quicker than we can on the cropping side. And so we put a ton of energy focused on that. And I think that's the main takeaway is that, that people are shocked to learn, especially as much as you hear on the news about everything kind of ranching, animal agriculture, livestock industry being bad, is that we're getting incredible outcomes of people here healing their land to where, you know, there's one guy, he got 13 inches of rain in a rain event over an afternoon, one of these deluge events that's just destroying communities and didn't have a puddle on his property. And his, his neighbor next door was flooded for months. And so much of that water that didn't puddle ran down the hill and into the local city. Um, we can mitigate floods and fires through how we manage our soil. Soils, um, yeah. Exactly. And so the fact that that's possible in an ag animal agriculture system, and, and there's all these nonprofits that used to kind of like like be like, oh, animal agriculture is bad, you know, and, and now all of them are trying to figure out like, oh, actually that's where the potential is. How do we work more in those systems? Um, so that's why we fairly unapologetically work in that space. Again, it depends. It doesn't mean all animal agriculture is good, but it has a ton of potential that's, that's unforeseen. Um, and a lot of the world just doesn't know there's this critical mass of people around the world doing it right and getting these net positive outcomes. And that was, that was why we had to create EOV as robust as it would, because nobody would believe us from just like photos right. and, and case studies. It was like, all right, let's go create empirical data, um, working with some of the best partners and academic institutions in the world to develop this protocol to, to really show this is happening all over the world. So we have over a thousand products in the marketplace that have gone through this verification, uh, both in food and retail, but you know, players like the USDA list us as a preferred partner, Whole Foods, Amazon. Um, and, and honestly, so many of these groups are like, we've just never seen anything with this amount of robustness. Most of the time, it's like, it's like, you know, five bullet points of simple boxes to check and everybody qualifies. And what does it really mean if everybody qualifies? It's not really, it's not really changing the narrative. It's not really driving change. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where we're operating from. That's how things are growing. Right. I think all of those numbers are just going to grow exponentially. Well, I would think so. And again, it goes back to what I said earlier. You're, you're, you're not greenwashing. I mean, I can go out right now and decide I want to start a company and grow whatever the hell it is and call it whatever I want to call it. And it is, it is because I decided right without verification. Exactly. I think that, I think we live in a world where, you know, data, data is obviously a word everybody can spell now. Um, 
And it's incredibly important to look at data both as good and as bad. And what does it actually mean? But again, it comes back to our food system. It's like, shit, look at the data, right? The data is saying this is working on a global scale. How do you look away from it? How do you, you know, because one of the things when it comes to, to regenerative agriculture is it scales across all sectors, I think, of ag, especially in crop situations, not necessarily so much with animals, but you know, it's tough to scale this thing, right? It, it's got a journey. I mean, I, I'll be the first to admit, you know, I, I, regenerative ag to me reminds me so much of 35 years ago in the organic movement when it was just, yeah. you know, it was it was exactly, it was beyond the wild, wild west. It was infantile. It had no sense of direction. It had, you know, you were, you were scrambling to try to figure out, you were trying to get anybody to buy anything they could. I mean, it was a whole different world back then, but I see so many similarities to that. And, but even back then, right, you had a hard time with scaling at the farm at the farm side of it. You had a hard time with consumer and retail confusion because, again, what does it mean? Because we have all these buzzwords that are out there. I mean, you know, what is it's like all natural? That's one of my favorite ones. All natural. What the fuck does that even mean, right? So, do you see a time though as it starts to scale, as it becomes more mainstream? Do you see a time when when regen is going to become more mainstream? And if it does, what kind of percentage would you think you know would you consider a victory inside of yeah. our food system? That's a big, yeah. high, I know it's a, it's a pie in the sky question, I know, but I think it's because it's question. such a small sliver and you've presented such a great case for making these changes, you've, it, yeah. quite frankly, to be honest with you, Chris, you've given the best position of regenerative agriculture in that I've heard to date and, 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 and an open-mindedness about what regenerative agriculture is that even the naysayers out there in the world are like, fuck all of it because it's just going to be my way or the highway can't possibly stop for a moment. They've got to stop for a moment and go, huh, really? Wow. So if you wouldn't mind touching on it a little bit, what, what what's a victory today? What is a victory today? Yeah. Um, you know, it's such a challenge. I think, I think humans by nature are reductionist. And I think we're by nature, um, you know, kind of waiting the last minute to get things done. And I think uh, we're seeing a world where we're starting to, to bump into um, some real tragedies. And everybody's like, oh, shit, all that stuff was weird. We got to figure this out. Uh, and the amount of energy that has moved into this space in the last 10 years is like unbelievable. I yeah. honestly would still be doing this, but I didn't believe we would be here in the 10 years that we are. We've already surpassed my expectations. Um, I thought it might be my kids that pick up the torch and, and run with it, that their generation would kind of get us to where we need to go and that we were going to face quite a bit of struggle in the next 30, 40 years as we kind of get that right. So I, I'm also not holding my breath. Uh, I, you know, you look at, at fads and trends. And so when you see that kind of hockey stick, what do you do with that? And, and I, I tell my team all the time, it's like, we are 1998 and, and this is the dot-com bubble. Um, we got to be able to survive through that and come out the other end, still doing the good work that we're here to do. Um, so I'm looking at this going, how do we become one of the few that make it through? Did the internet stop working in the dot-com? No. But all the bullshit and the shams and, and you know, the fake clicks and the click farms, all of that did go by the wayside. And so we're kind of maybe really getting ready for some of that, of the, the kind of BS separating from, from the quality. And there are other quality players out there besides us. I'm not going to say we're the only ones by any means, uh, but there's a lot of crap out there too that's really just showing up that, you know, hasn't been on the scene at all, has no background in agriculture. And, and all of a sudden, with just a little magic wave of the wand and some some warm wishes, now all of a sudden, everything they do is perfect. Um, right. 
and and I always say, you know, every great success story probably has twenty years of struggle behind it. That we have like fifty or seventy years of struggle yeah. behind that. So yeah. so to be in this moment in the sun where all of a sudden everybody's about what we're about is great. Um, I think the consumer part and the value part is really important. I love what you say about we just have to value that and all the extra benefits it has in our lives and in our society. The nutrient density piece is huge, but all the other things of like, you know, like um, a good example is is uh, New Zealand. You know, we all think about like, uh, you know, Hobbit land and it's a, yeah. it's a beautiful country and verdant green and, and incredible. And the first time it's a very agrarian country. It, uh, up until the last 10 years, it was their number one industry. And now tourism is their number one industry. Um, but the first time I went to New Zealand, I was shocked. Every riverway you'd cross, these little streams and creeks all around the farms says, don't swim here. There was too much chemical runoff uh, and right. too much erosion that you were creating these, these unstable environments. It's like you can't even swim in your own community anymore on a hot day without causing harm to your health. I think that's the next stage of value we have to get consumers to really think about. Mm -hmm. The group that is already thinking about that because they're picking up the tab for a lot of it is world governments. So governments are paying attention to that. And I think where we'll see the big shift and the next unlock is when we move away from programs that pay producers to grow as many calories as possible without at all caring about the unintended consequences. Right. And rather, what's the total value we can create for society while still feeding the world? And that's, and that's a tough knife edge to walk. But if we're going to pay trillions of dollars globally back to producers, let's send the right signals along the way. And so I think that's the group that's probably most incentivized is to move the way that we, we currently subsidize food production to this, again, this fancy word of ecosystem services, this ecosystem services approach to where you are incentivized for when your water gets cleaner, for when your air gets cleaner, to when you're showing that you're sequestering carbon because you're maximizing photosynthesis, because you're maximizing biodiversity. To me, that's the real unlock. The, the consumers need to care about this for their own responsibility, but they can only carry it so far on their backs. The rest Correct. of the world has to act too, and all those other stakeholders. So that's that's what I'm holding out for is when is when we really have the right incentive structures from a policy basis. Um, but but and and that's coming from a group that has no policy arm. We looked at this right. and said like that's glacially slow. That's what needs to happen next, but that is glacially slow. The market will drive change faster, and the governments will actually follow. And so that's our strategy and approach is is starting to get this out there in a in a private opt in. Uh, approach and getting and getting policy to follow behind that. We're trying to create a vacuum that drives policy in. Right. I freaking love that. Well, look, I mean, raising the bar in food and fiber, incredibly hard, right? Period. Especially if retailers or consumers um, actually don't work together to understand the long-term benefits, right? Which I think is what we're really talking about here is the change today is fabulous, but the change today is so meaningful downstream from everything. And I think that's, you know, a big part of what we, we need to grasp. And I also think too, that, that we live in this, as I've said before, we don't value food. We have this low price stigma in our mind and that hurts yeah. us in so many ways. So can you touch a little bit, if you wouldn't mind about how you're like raising the bar for brands and helping them to kind of stand in the gap between the retailers and the consumers, you know, to give them that messaging or just kind of a better feel to people. Yeah. There's a couple things. So I talked about in the, in the beginning, we, we had these, these uh, brands that we saw as angel philanthropists. Those are the ones that are most tip of the spear. We're going to invest in this because most most brands actually 
believe in at least the progressive ones to believe in a future that has more true cost accounting in it. True cost accounting means you pay for more of the externalities that right. come through your entire supply chain. So if in the future, they're going to be held accountable for more of that, or even all of that, let's start making decisions today that are better suited to that true cost bottom line. Um, and so those are the brands that we started with. And then after that, there've been kind of like follower brands that have come along after that. Um, but that's, that's, that's the approach. I think if we can get that first phase of brands making that shift, you then get your, your second phase of brands. And then we found all sorts of synergies between what we call whole animal utility and so, or whole farm utility. Um, there's all sorts of waste streams coming off conventional farms. Con the conventional thinking, reductionist human thinking, you know, kind of Henry Ford factory thinking, um, the science of management is like, ignore the waste, optimize for what you're creating. Just keep things flowing downhill. This doesn't work in, in complex systems. That's not, nature never creates waste. Something else is there to pick it up and take those nutrients and do something else with it. Right. And so, and so we want to see a world that does the same thing in how we operate in a business sense. And so one of the first things that happened is we had an apparel brand and a food brand get in the same room together. We were out on a farm, we were doing an education event uh, and they were like, wait a minute, we source leather, you source meat. We're sourcing from the same farms. We never even talk to each other. We don't poach each other's people. We don't go to the same events. And we are, we are sourcing from the same farmers and sometimes selling to the same consumers. And they're public about this now, so I can talk about it. It was Timberland and Applegate. And so Timberland makes shoes and leather and all sorts of outdoor gear. And Applegate makes hot dogs and lunch meats and things of yeah. that nature. And they were like, let's share a resource on this. We don't have to worry about antitrust because we're in different categories in the marketplace. Um, and they, we joke all the time, maybe one day they'll even cross sell the consumers. I'm not sure how to show a hot dog and a pair of boots to a consumer. Like a hot dog. Yeah, like a hot dog shoe. <laughs> we're, we're all trying to figure it out. Um, and, and that kind of collaboration gives me hope. Those are the kinds of things I didn't think we were going to see happen. Right. And now we have brands begging for that, that are just like, again, we aren't going to make it. I, it was pretty early on in this journey. I was in a C-suite with, uh, with a big multinational food company. And they were like, we know we're dinosaurs. We know that we're dinosaurs and the meteor's coming. And we're trying to figure out, can we evolve in time? Everything about how we've built our empire and made our money is extractive. And extractive will not serve the future. We have to give more back. And so the fact that even individuals and in those kind of organizations know that is, is amazing. Whether or not they step up and put their money where their mouth is, and it's not even just money, it's hard work. We tell brands from day one, if you want to work with us, you have to change the way you do business. Sometimes I'll use this, this cartoon. Um, I, I don't even know who to credit it to, but it was this political cartoon where it's a, it's a politician in a pulpit and he, and he shouts, who wants change? And everybody goes, yeah. And then he goes, who wants to change? And everybody shirks down. Right. And, and that's what we're selling. We're like, this is hard. It's expensive. It's unproven. And you have to change, which nobody wants to do. Who wants to go on a journey together? And there are a handful that do. And we take those few and we run as far as we can together. And so yeah. that's, that's our theory of change. And that's slowly morphing out to a larger adoption curve of people that it's like, we make it easier, it scales, it gets cheaper, it gets better, it gets easier. So to your question of percentage, we can't do it fast enough. But I think the big unlock will when you see a policy marker behind it. And I think a smaller country like, like New Zealand or Ireland or Uruguay 
will be drivers of that first and the big countries will follow. Um, but that's when I think we were like, okay, we've got some wind in our sails. We might make it. That's what I think the change, the big change will happen. I think that's incredibly powerful, dude. I don't, I, and I think you're right. And I think what's, again, you're elevating the conversation that it's real hard to, it's, it, you can't look at what we've been talking about and go, well, this isn't a good idea. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we, well, cause nothing that we've said, look, but it goes back to the whole original point of where we started. We have to start to value our food. We have to recognize that, you know, cheap has a hidden cost in so many different ways. And again, I'm not advocating that everything should be $20 for everything, right? It's, we don't live in a world, it's not going to work, but there are certain things that we can be doing. You know, you take a look at farm bill policy, take a look at farm bill policy, how it relates to the snack food industry and why it was, how it all comes together, right? We've created something out of excess, which has not yeah. been good for us, right? And, and, and we've got to step back and make some of these changes. And I want to get into to climate a little bit because I find climate to be such an interesting conversation today um, because it's a very polarizing topic. I mean, let's be honest. The earth is changing. We know the earth is changing. It's changing on its own. We're not helping. You know, we're speeding up as change. There's no two ways about that. You can't look at the different things that we're doing and not say that. Um, but the earth is going to do what the earth is going to do, whether, you know, whatever the case may be. It's been around here. You know, the earth's been around here for a couple of days. So it is in my, you know, it, it, it's such a polarizing topic. It's got a lot of misinformation. It's got division. You've got you know, hostilities out there now, confusion, lies, facts, bottlenecking, all this shit that flows around this. And I like what you're talking about, about climate and how this relates back to land and market and why I think it's so valuable. Talk to me a little bit about the things that are swirling around today in the climate conversation that's got your attention. Thanks for joining the Todd Versation. And now a word from our sponsor. At Produce Careers, we are in the people business. Thanks for listening to Todd Versations. As your trusted executive search firm for the fresh produce, food processing, and agribusiness industries, we focus on outcomes. With over 80 years of combined industry expertise, with our global networks, we have the tools and the skills to identify top talent for your organization's strategic hiring needs. Our relationship-driven approach and proven recruitment process deliver the right candidates at the right time. At Produce Careers, we know each hire is an investment. Whether you're looking for the perfect candidate or searching for your next challenge, call or email us today and let us partner with you. I think the spectrum of polarity is more divided in the U.S. Than, than anywhere else in the world. It doesn't mean that everybody else is, is right. Um, I think there are pieces, like, you know, we talk a lot about this, this emerging carbon economy. You want to talk about a Wild West. Um, we have not yet branded a, a, a carbon credit based off of, of EOB. We have better real-world outcome data than anyone, um, and we've treaded very lightly into that space. Um, original, they call it biogenic carbon, but but you know, biological based carbon is based on this idea of planting trees. So you have people all over the world that are just like plant trees anywhere, plant them in sand dunes in the Sahara, like that pine tree will somehow grow. And it's, and, and I'm, I'm being reductionist and, and a little bit hyperbolic on purpose. Um, but these are places that have, have never supported forests. And the succession of going from sand to a forest doesn't work. Uh, we worked on some well, projects a, in the middle. It's a feel good. It's a feel good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are people that legitimately think this is the solution. We, we worked on a project in the Middle East where, where people there had spent billions of dollars of their own money trying to get a forest established to keep the sands out to start sequestering carbon. Um, 
And so that that's kind of the whole market is driven on this idea of trees because it's simple and it's linear. It's like, there wasn't a tree. I planted one in places where they're supposed to grow, they grow. And it's a very predictable rate of what rate we're going to get this biomass generated that's largely carbon. Trees store their carbon above ground, grasses and other plants store it below ground in their roots. Right. So right. there's there's risk of fire and all the rest. But everybody wants this like super linear approach. Then you look at soil carbon and you realize it is an entire economy of carbon trading. So that plant pulled the carbon out of the atmosphere, it puts it in its root, and at some point it trades that root with a small bug, a bacteria, a small fungi, and then it goes through a whole economy of trading. And right now everybody's like, let's measure one single molecule of carbon and track it and call everything else noise. Like, like again, this reductionist human mindset, we love to look at reductionism because we can't process the whole, our brain isn't made that way. And so um, I tend to think as the tree market for carbon as like the bond market, relatively safe and stable if you're in these places that have this, but all sorts of unintended consequences. I'm gonna bring up New Zealand again. They just created a public policy that says plant as many pine trees as you can, and we're gonna pay a bunch of money for it in the short term. And all these working landscapes are ripping out to plant monocultures of pine trees uh, and 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 changing that entire culture and landscape of people that have been shepherding these bucolic, beautiful hillside ranches of sheep and cattle and doing it well, now all of a sudden it's just a pine tree forest. And what happens to that pine tree forest over the next 10, 20 years when nothing else is planted with it? Um, so that's your bond market model. And now you're looking at soil carbon and it's a little bit more like looking at GDP. We cannot process all of it. So we have to look at momentum and markers in that system. When we start to look at soil that way, and we're looking at corollary data, again, like I said earlier, like water sticks to carbon, biodiversity shows up when you have more water, we can look at corollary data. You can create something that's much more of a sound ecosystem service credit. Ecosystem service credit is a lot more palatable regardless of where you fall on the climate spectrum, because if you take climate out, let's say climate change didn't exist. Let's say we're a hundred years ago, which I'll argue that climate was changing even a hundred years ago before we started. Yeah, but and, and so my take on that's a little different. I actually think it was happening through tillage. So when you were tilling the soil, you're releasing carbon back up. It's harder in the equation to pull it back down, easier to release it back up. Through, so through massive cultivation, we were causing climate change for thousands of years prior to oil. Um, but nonetheless, um, in that, in that world where you're now sequestering carbon, you're increasing biodiversity, you're increasing water, your, uh, farms are more productive. That's the hard part for people to get. We've been a little bit indoctrinated by this organic thing where you're taking patients that are hooked on drugs, you're getting them off drugs and they're going through that withdrawal period of being on drugs. That's, that's what the conventional farm is. And we're going, oh, productivity went down. When you farm like nature, productivity goes up. And yeah. so, so we're getting to a place where we're seeing regenerative actually has more production, sometimes double and triple the production of what we were getting under a conventional mindset. It takes more intention, intentionality to manage, but we're getting there. And so, um, so we want to get to a place where there's an ecosystem service credit that embodies all of these things, the soil health, the carbon, the water, the biodiversity. And when bundled together, you really can't argue with it because even if you, if we don't know all the answers on climate change, or even if you don't believe in it, or even if you say, boy, the models are too new, it's too shaky, 
Who doesn't want clean air and who doesn't want clean water and who doesn't want more biodiversity of which we all depend on these landscapes? So I think we can depoliticize the, the, the carbon climate thing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're starting to see those signals coming in the marketplace to where all of a sudden brands only cared about carbon accounting. They do these life right. cycle assessments and then everybody gets again the carbon gold stars. And now all of a sudden they're like, ooh, we really care about water. We really care about biodiversity. And who's that coming from? It's coming from their financiers. Their financiers, yeah. their, their institutional equity investors are going, uh, your supply chain is really fragile. You're sourcing from farms that you know nothing about. We are going to hose all of ourselves as a species and I won't be around to make any more money. And so it's the financiers, it's the financial market that's actually probably driving the most systemic change right now through the marketplace is saying, you have to look at this holistically of how we change the way we measure impact and this true cost accounting idea. Um, And we see more being driven from there than anywhere else. Well, yeah, and that's, I appreciate your answer. And that's kind of why I framed it up the way I did, because I, I think it's, it's a, a lot in this country, we, we like to um, find division. We think that going, going with division is much better than trying to solve things. It's more fun to be divisive than it is to be, you know, solution-based. It gets a lot more clicks, right? You rise up social media quicker, right? Sure. You, can, you, know, you can monetize being an asshole in this country. It's good. <laughs> it's business, right? No, but no bullshit, right? It's the truth, right? And so- you know, when I when I start to think about climate again, it, it, when I think about it, and, and you know, using climate as a weapon, I think is incredibly dangerous. I mean, we we know that we need to make actionable, scalable, and meaningful changes, right? And we know we need to do that, and we need to stop the fist fighting. We need to, you know, and that's what I love about what your platform is because you're making all of that happen. You're making it real. You know, you can reach out and touch almost what you all are doing because it's laying in front of you for your own eyes to see the benefits of what you've created. It's not greenwashing. Again, it's not a bunch of bullshit. So tell me if you wouldn't mind how you've changed for your members and for your group and what people can go back and and feel good about when they see that land to market label on product. You know, tell me about how you've helped companies with their personal climate goals and how you make them kind of realize don't get caught up in the fodder. Don't get caught up in what you're reading, you know, whatever the moment of the day, you know, it's almost like a flavor of the day for lack of a better word. Right. But talk about those meaningful changes that you can show folks. Yeah. And uh, even in our, in our subset of progressive brands, it's, it's literally like you just, you know, walked into an internal meeting. Um, you know, you've got those that just want the carbon accounting and they're willing to be part of the broader solution, even if they don't know why. Um, and so we have to start with them on a journey and say, yeah, no, you're trying to do this carbon accounting and that's great and, and carbon neutral, but there is a whole bigger plethora of things that we should be measuring and, and with more robustness and more corollary data together. Um, and then you've got the other brands that are a little bit further along in that journey, a little bit more progressive, and they're already saying, oh, we need to be investing at the very beginning from, you know, what happens at the farm level. Um, so brands like Caring Group and UGG. Uh, that are like the, the starting with the farmer is how we how we create this change. Um, yeah. there, there was a tool that that caring group, I think really helped accelerate. I keep talking about all these things that happened in the last 10 years inside of industry and particularly inside of apparel and kind of carbon accounting. Uh, they launched a tool called environmental profit and loss. And it was this idea of measuring true cost accounting and where all their impact comes from and what it costs to fix it. And they, they built out this whole matrix of where all their impact happens for certain products and for certain product lines. And what they realize is that most of the impact happens at, at 
at farms at raw material sourcing. And they, right. and they were, they, they had enough self-admission to be like, man, you know, and, and I'm, I don't want to speak for them, but it, you know, my perception of it was like, Oh, we've been focusing on the packaging and the led light bulbs and, and the more efficient trucks. And in most of this impact is happening at, at farms. Downstream, we don't know downstream. anything about farmers. Exactly. 100%, we don't, we don't, 100%. that's a category we don't know about. And so, um, I think to see that come around and to see people say, Ooh, it is more holistic. It is more comprehensive and, and sourcing really matters. The comparison to that is most of our clothes in this country at this point are oil. They're made of oil. We are wearing oil every day. Yeah. All of us are, you almost can't escape it. And, and then we're demonizing those that are in more natural fiber systems and making it harder on them. And they're kind of wakening up on their own while the media is beating them up and everybody else is beating them up and being like, uh, actually we could do better here. And this is the real opportunity. So, so, you know, even our own progressive clients run on a spectrum and some are very much in that, that carbon accounting space. Give me as many carbon gold stars as you can. And I'll learn what they mean later. And then, and then some are more at that cutting edge of what if we really changed everything and how we source and really look at this in a holistic way. And, and the goal is to move everybody along that journey together. And there's a lot we don't know in that. I mean, I, I don't want to come with the hubris of like, oh, we've got it all figured out. Right. Moving product through these massive complex supply chains, even in your local community. When I was a local farmer, the amount of moves that happened to get product from point A to point B crazy. Would, blow, would blow most people's minds just to make sure that it's like fresh and cold and healthy is, is a challenge in its own regard. Um, you know, And then you always have to have that balance of, how much food safety versus freedom do we want? And, and not everybody's on that same end of the spectrum. You start looking at global supply chains of leather and how that gets tanned and wool and the different places that goes to to get scoured and spun into yarn and then woven into something that we wear and then cut into a garment and then manufactured into that garment and then shipped. These supply chains are massive. Yeah. And to create any sort of connectivity through that is a huge undertaking. But that's where I say, like, I didn't think this would happen even in the last 10 years, you now have brands that are like, we'll reach back and be part of the solution. We reach forward from the farms and we create new supply chains that didn't exist before. And they're smaller and they're simpler, but they work. And we get all the right people bought in relationally first from a personal standpoint. And then we focus on like segregation and chain of custody and all these like legalistic things, affidavits. Um, but it's all about buy-in first. And, and that's where we're creating the most change and seeing the most difference. I love it. Dude. And you know what? It goes back to what we're going to harp on it again because, well, it's my show and I can say whatever the fuck I want, but we got to value our food, right? So when you see a corporation going back, going like, wait a minute, you're right, LED lights, let's do it. That's great. That's a part of it. But we got to start here. We got to start with the soil. We got to start with how, where things are coming from. And I think, again, we go back to food, especially in this country, is incredibly easy. It's accessible. It's there. Uh, we don't think about it. I mean, you, God, look what everybody did during COVID when we ran out of toilet paper. You'd have fucking thought we we're being invaded by aliens, right? It was, right. It was literally <laughs> the end of the world, right? Yeah. But that tells you, and, and and I take away from that, and I make light of it. But to me, that was a really pivotal moment of like, we just don't give a shit where it comes from. It just needs to be there when we want it there. And that attitude, you know, is is again, bad policy, capitalism at its finest, right? Trying to get, you know, Believe me, there, there's guys that don't want to see this succeed because you're a threat to their business model. I get that. But at the end of the day, compare this apple to that apple and tell me in 10 years which apple is going to be better 
for the next generation? What are these kids going to have left over if we don't step up and use the wisdom we have today to formulate these changes that we can already see need to happen, right? Which is why I harp about school meals and why it's so important to be feeding these kids better food, right? Start there. And, you know, it's just, it's so incredibly powerful to hear what you have to say. And I'm just, I'm so, just so pleased with what this conversation has been about. And I think it's going to be incredibly eye-opening for people to, again, take a second to look at what it is that you're buying. Take a look to ask the questions, go on the website. You know, I was thinking about this yesterday before I prep on a show. You know, I, I was thinking about this. I, I had to pull out a Ziploc bag and I thought, I wonder what happened if I called them and asked them if there's microplastic in the Ziploc bag. What would they tell me? <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. Seriously, I'm not trying to pick on them. You know, Ziploc's a, con- you know, everybody, it's like Kleenex. That's what they call it, right? So it's a pl- plastic yeah. bag. But the fact of the matter is, what would their answer be? No, we don't have any bullshit, right? But at the end of the day, we need to start thinking and asking those questions. I think it's incredibly powerful, dude. I really do. I think your whole message has just been spot on. And I think, you know, I hope it motivates people to get into the to get into the arena a little bit and ask questions about what's just sitting in their own kitchen and what it means. What is really in that? And what is that? What is the net effect of all that? So I'll throw another one at you. I'm going to give you, I'm going to, I'm going to let you have the, the crystal ball moment right here. Wave your magic wand right now and tell me one solution, one solution that you'd like to enact right now with the world. I think, I think there's a forum I could go pretty meta. I'm going to go meta on this. Um, I think what you said at the beginning about value is the key. And I think it's about, it's about what we as society collectively value, the value that we put into that. So if we, you can't really value your food without valuing the farmer. Um, 100%. And, and that's, that's one piece of the puzzle. I talked about you know, being a pretty staunch capitalist, but I think that word value also comes into money. And what if our money was based on our values? And, and, and that's where I see a future going that could be really exciting to where if our if our monetary units were actually connected to, built upon, and directly related to the things that we had value for, you could get to this broader world of, of triple bottom line ideals of the social, environmental, and economic all together because we're seeing them as an intertwined molecule for the first time. Um, mm-hmm. So I mentioned policy as, as next. I think monetary structures behind that. It's interesting to see, I'm not a, I'm not a crypto guy. It's interesting to see what that space has done. What if mining was based on, on values though, instead of being based on cracking algorithms that do nothing for society, um, but was, was based on something like ecosystem services or happiness quotients or, and I know that sounds super out there, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure as a world that will really get to the better state we all want to get to until our financial constructs actually aren't just valuable, but mimic our values. Well, it's, it, look, there's, there's capitalism and there's conscious capitalism. I'll quote John Mackey. I think, I think it's exactly what it is, right? I mean, John's got yeah. a great point. That's but, right. you know, and, and to come alongside what you're saying, I mean, let's just, for the shits and giggles, because we're both here in California, let's just talk, let's go with EV cars, right? We want to get electric vehicles, but we don't want to deal with the issue of conflict minerals. We don't want to deal with the issues of slavery. Children digging holes, right? That's what they do. The moment they can hold a shovel, they're digging a hole. Go online and look, kids. I'm not making it up. It's right there for you to taking. We look past that, right? And we've got to start putting a consciousness around our food system. We have to start getting to the point of recognizing 10 billion people are going to be on this planet really quick, let alone the aliens that are going to come, which I hope to God they get here, right? But nonetheless... 
we're not going to make it the way we're doing it because we're grinding everything into the ground. We're not going in a positive direction at, at the at the scale that we need to to catch up with the disruption we've already caused. Again, the climate's going to do the world. The plant's going to do what it's going to do, just like a cloud's going to form when a cloud decides to form. But we've got to take a we've got to take a moment to, to step back and say we've got to value our society. We've got to value this planet. We've got to value the next generation. And because we act like, you know what, we're here for our 73 years, fuck them at the end of 74. I don't care anymore. That attitude's not going to get it for us, folks. It's just not. It just makes no sense. Yeah, just remind me of a story. I, I know a guy um, did a lot of thought leadership at the UN and, and was kind of a, a, a big wig within the UN. And he did this study where he said, okay, I'm going to take a bunch of CEOs from Fortune 500 companies and we're going to survey them. One simple question If you could hit, all of your environmental goals for the year and you hit all your profit goals for the year, but to do it, you have to miss on your profit goals for the first quarter. You're going to make them up in the other three, but in the first quarter, you're going to miss. Would you do it? It was statistically a hundred percent no, because the short-term investment is what holds the CEO accountable. That's what drives the ship. And if right. you don't hit those goals for all the day traders, for all the short-term trading, you're not going to make it. And you know who drives most of that is actually our retirement accounts. It's it's yeah. it's regular Main Street folks. It's not some institutional Warren Buffett pulling puppet strings, Bill Gates, as much as we you know choose to, to demonize certain individuals in that space. The majority of what drives those gain after gain after gain after gain is our 401ks. It's our it's our own money that we're putting into our retirement. The pensions are gone. We're all saying we have to have gain, you know, it just it has to the treadmill has to go up like this forever. And the second it doesn't, the board puts the pressure on the CEO and you're out. And so if you miss on your quarterly targets, you're not around to serve for the other 3 to have the company get there. So it was resoundingly no. And so yeah. again, I come back to at some point we have to address the financial piece of this. I don't like the way a lot, a lot of people are kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and we're going to go to these very um, you know, planned and designed societies. Yeah, it's a little uh, crazy. That's a little out there. That's, that scares me a little bit. But, yeah, that's a little uh, bit. I'm a big believer in agency and choice and democracy. <laughs> we're kind of willing to let a lot of that go. But I, I think we do have to make some very large structural changes in money. And if, it, if profit is the only driver, this is what society looks like. I think you yeah. can have a post-profit capitalism and and I'd like to see it come around. Yeah, I think I, 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 I don't disagree. I think it has a lot to do, again, with putting value on what we're doing all the way around, not just food, but all of it, because, you yeah. know, we're burning, you know, you take a look, you take a look at other countries and what they do, even from a climate standpoint. I mean, my God, some of the shit that's going on in these other countries, they don't give a shit what they're burning. They don't give a shit what's going into the river. They don't care at all. And I think yeah. that your your point's valid. The only way we're going to make these positive changes because we're all on the same rock, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's, yeah. You know, we do. You know, look, we do a whole bunch of good stuff over here, and ten other countries do a hundred times worse. What did anybody gain, right? right? We've got to start. We've got to start looking at this as much bigger issue. And again, it goes back to driving value into these conversations and value and what it looks like long term. I appreciate very much your perspective and what you've shared. And I think you're going to make a lot of people, uh, you're going to make a lot of people pause and think and, and uh, you know, hopefully wake up a little bit and recognize that we need to start taking a much more proactive approach to changing our planet through 
The systems that are in place today, which is food and agriculture, we're losing farmers right and left. Our average age of a farmer is 60-something years old. We don't have second generation going. Here's a stat for you I just pulled up. I had somebody on not too long ago. The CDC, there's more, there's more suicide deaths by farmers than there are by veterans today. How about that stat? That's something yeah, to wake really. you up. Go pull up the data on the CDC. Unbelievable. And 225 million people around the globe in agriculture with mental health problems today on a global scale. 225 million, man. That's a lot of folks. And who, who grows up wanting to be a farmer? I mean, that is the brain drain that, you know, the, right. the kids that are on multi-generational farms get told, hey, you go off to the city, you get a big job, you escape this. The, the one kind of, you know, run to the litter gets left behind and they get left to, to take care of the farm. Um, and, and you've got financial constructs there that are, that are predatory lending happening around the globe that, hey, you know, buy my seeds today for this and then we're going to come for the whole thing and break your legs tomorrow. The amount of pressure and stress on farmers, people have no idea the amount of, of risk and capital and hours that go in just to make a mildly successful farm. In any other arena, that would be awarded massively better. And it's like, that's what it takes for survival in this arena. And, and the oligarchies that, that price control and push the farmer down, you are the least important to us. It's raw material. We don't really care about you. The whole right. system is designed to push that demographic down from the top. And I, I don't know that we make it, again, this is why so much of what we do at Land of the Market is about the quality of life for farmers. I don't know if we make it until we get a generation aspiring to be farmers. And, and I'm seeing that come about. Uh, I'm seeing the first glimmers of hope and it's happening globally. It's not, it's not just yeah. here. We've, it's, it's got tenants of that kind of hippie commune farm, which, which has some cool features to it, but it has some, some other components that it's like, this is what I want to do for a career. This is what I want to do. I don't necessarily have to live with, with 50 of my friends to do it, but this is what I want to do because it's the best quality of life for me and my family, even if right. it doesn't have the most dollars attached to it. I want to see that dollar number go up personally, but I think, I think farmers should get paid like doctors and lawyers if they're creating these kind of positive outcomes for our society. You know, that's my take on it. But yeah. um, it's going to require a cultural shift. Some of that's happening, but nobody controls a cultural shift. It's a virgin. So Correct. we'll have to see how it plays out. No, I don't. Look, and you're right. You know, I'm, I'm excited about, and what I'm seeing from my perspective, you know, in the space fairly deep is, is ag technology today, right? Whether it be, you know, greenhouses, vertical farms, some of this, it's, it's because, you know, you're farming on your phone today, right? So you're bringing the kids are starting to get a little bit more intrigued about farming. Now, whether they stay in that space and do a greenhouse, they branch out and do other things. I, I feel like there's a little bit of a buzz going again, you know, down in the, in the academic phase about young people getting involved in this. And I'm, I'm glad to see it. We need it um, where they end up. I, you know, who knows, but I'm, I'm glad to see it at least getting a little bit of traction. What's next for you guys? What's, is there anything exciting? I mean, you're, you know, besides the announcement you're not supposed to make that you already made, I won't bring it back up again. I'll just let it go. But what's next for land to market? I think it's, it's, it's a lot about, integrity. I think that, that those questions, and I MC I, I a lot of events, you know, and I, I, I get to be the person that asks the questions. And those questions are always kind of like baited to be like, give us the next big thing and something exciting. And um, I think for us, we're cautious in this phase of rapid growth. Yeah. Let's, it's it's the, the two tensions that our team is always holding is, is, is how do we get it right and make sure that we're doing it correctly. And at the same time, we give ourselves permission to fail. You don't find success until you fail over and over and over and over again. And so 
that's what we're trying to hold on to. That's our next chapter internally is, is holding those two things. Let's do it with integrity and let's also give ourselves permission. And, and everybody that's coming along the journey with us, we don't have this figured out. This is brand new. Literally people have spent billions of dollars trying to tackle the type of problems that we are tackling. And we're kind of a David Goliath approach of like, we're gonna get up tomorrow and try again. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use your explicit rating card here, but doing something that never has been done before is really fucking hard. Yeah, and, it is. And, and people will throw stones at you from every direction possible. Um, and, and we're just galvanizing our effort that we've made some headway. I don't have the hubris to say we have all the answers figured out. Uh, we have more to figure out than we have figured out today. Uh, we have more problems than solutions, but I can't think of a better journey to be on. And I have an amazing group of people and an incredible group of progressive brands that are working on that with us. Um, and that gives me a ton of hope for the future. So that's, that's it. our take on what's next. <laughs> that's a great answer. You know what I love yeah, about that? That's answer, where we're dude? going. Yeah. But you know, what I love about that answer It's from your heart and that's what matters, right? It's a real answer. It's not a canned answer. It's a real answer. And that's powerful. And I think given what you shared with everybody from your heart, uh, you've given people a lot to think about. I think this conversation has been incredibly fun. It's been very eye-opening. Again, as I told you, it's, it's one of the best conversations I've heard or had or been a part of on this topic. And I hope people uh, take away from it what I'm taking away from. And it's changed, you know, you've got me thinking about things a little differently. And I think it's interesting how my path was leading me down this value about food today. And then when you and I hook up, it's like, all right, now, all right, now I got some more thoughts around that. Dude, I can't thank you enough for being here and hanging out with me. I really can't. Totally. No, thank you. It was a really fun conversation. I do a lot of podcasts and most aren't willing to color outside the lines like we did today. So that was super fun. It's it's the only way we're going to win if we don't have these conversations for change, for Christ's sake. (laughs) Otherwise, we're we're just doing the same. I know. We're just eating eating (laughs) shitty French fries and dying young. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, come on. (laughs) The end of the day. I love it, it, dude. You're You're welcome back anytime. You have an open invitation and I'd love to have you back and whatever we can do to help, you know, let's do it. I really, again, appreciate you being here. Everybody, look. You got over a thousand brands that say land to market somewhere on that packaging, somewhere, somehow. Get on their website. They've got a hundred members that are doing different stuff. There's things out there that you can participate in. And you know what? If you get stuff from Alexander Franklin Farm, you can help. Maybe the kid could have come from my cow. Who knows? Right? right? My, I don't even know. Again, I don't even know what the hell my cow looks like, but there's a cow there that's mine. I know that for a fact because Blake told me I could have one. So, anyways. <laughs> Get on there and do something different. Challenge yourself to be different. Start out, go look in that, like I said, go look in the kitchen right now. See what's in there. See what you can, how long you're going to make that work for yourself in there. If something happens to our food supply, ask yourself what difference you can make in your differences. You can vote with your dollars. You can vote with intelligence. You can stand up behind something that's going to make a difference generationally for this planet. And that, kids, is called a win. So let's go get some more wins. Dude, I can't thank you enough, Chris, for being here, brother. Much love from my side of this uh, world to your side of the world. And like I said, anything we can do for you, please don't think twice. Likewise. Pleasure beyond Todd. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. Take care, everybody. We appreciate you. Check us out on social media. You know why? Hey, Chris, you know why I'm on social media? Why? Because that's, that's where the cool kids are. <laughs> right. Take care, everybody. Much love. See you soon. <laughs> Bye.